Welcome to HBR Now, and thank you all for tuning in from all over the world. For those of you who um, have been watching us for the last few weeks, I think you'll notice that I am not Audi. I'm Josh, and I am anchoring the show this week. We thought that it would be fun for us to rotate the anchor every so often, and so we're doing that. And today I'm joined by uh, with my co-host, Octavia Gordima, who's the uh, talent uh, coach and, and entrepreneur and started 2010 Agency, as well as an author. And Adi Ignatius. The, I, I am Adi Ignatius. You're killing it, Josh. I just yeah, got <laughs> He said he would probably just be critiquing me for the whole show. Now, don't worry. Adi will be coming back as an anchor soon enough, but I know there are lots of Octavia fans, so she will be anchoring soon, rest assured. Now, we also want to be hearing from you, so I'm, so I'm supposed to periodically remind you to enter your questions uh, throughout the show because we, we do look forward to them and we do read quite a few of them. Today, we're uh, joined with our guest, Michael Sandel, who's a professor of political philosophy at Harvard University. We are very excited to talk with Michael and make sense around all the post-election issues, as well as kind of discuss what it will take for President-elect Joe Biden to lead in this challenging time. But before we get to all that, I want to check in with Octavia and Adi because, uh, you know, we've been living through this together um, as the show started this, this season. I want to know. How are you both doing? Wow, it feels, it feels like it's been a month since last week's show. <laughs> it <laughs> really does. Right. It's the longest week in history. I have not yet caught up on my sleep yet. That oh, might yeah. take another few weeks. Hmm. But, um, but otherwise, I'm doing okay. How are you, Audie? Um, so this is one of the stranger moments in US history. First, the good news. You know, uh, Pfizer announcing that it has a uh, its its COVID vaccine is 90 percent effective. That's huge. Uh, Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, was on our show last season and was was very optimistic about the timing for a vaccine and the timing for Pfizer. So that's really interesting to see that happening. But aside from that, this is really weird. You know, the process, the election process seems over. We did what we always do, which is proclaim a winner. And we sort of have two presidents now. Um, I actually can't sleep again. I mean, this kind of uncertainty just troubles me. I mean, I get that each side litigates the results and, and you're allowed to ask for a recount or you're allowed to, to file suits if they're, if they're legit. But, you know, I mean, the president firing his defense secretary, who, by the way, got in trouble with him because he didn't want to put troops out on the street. To, uh, to face protesters. It's just, th this is a very uncertain time. We've had a lot of uncertainty and I'm looking forward to getting past uncertainty. We're just not, I'm with you 100%. I don't know if we're getting past uncertainty. I, I'm sleeping again, but I think it's because I think I'm so tired of being anxious. I just like, at some point, don't you conk out? No. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, I you know, I, I just, Give us, get, you know, let's get to mid-January and someone will be president. I think Joe Biden, but I'm looking forward to that moment. All right, well, we'll keep talking about it and checking in with each other as the weeks go by and we head towards the holidays. But for now, I want to turn towards introducing our guest, Michael Sandel. Michael has become as close to a philosopher rock star as you can get. Now, I have no idea what kind of stadiums that Plato played, but I can tell you that Michael packs them in. He has one of the most popular courses at Harvard on justice, and it's not just uh, the most well-attended, but it's also online, and millions of people have streamed it. What he does is he poses really tricky moral dilemmas. 
debates, like is torture always wrong? Or if you need to steal drugs to save your baby, is that justified? He gets his classes to probe theories of fairness and justice, weaving in ancient philosophers and modern day thinkers. In short, he gets us to challenge our assumptions. Now, he tackles things and it's never quite what meets the eye. In his latest book, which we'll talk about, Tyranny of Merit, Michael takes on the notion of the meritocracy and how it's been promoted, especially by progressives over the last few decades. And he shows us why it's done more harm than good. It's a critical issue because it's linked to our lack of unity, which was well on display during this presidential election. President-elect Biden is taking on the top role at a time when the nation seems permanently fractured. And all of these issues that we're talking about earlier are boiling over the pandemic, but issues of racial and gender inequality, the fallout from climate change, as well as many, many other issues. Biden says that he is the unifier and healer, but it seems so hard to do when neither side comprehends one another. And so we wanted to try and make sense of some of this, and we thought that we would ask Michael Sandel. Merit by itself, Josh, is a good thing. If I need surgery for myself or a loved one, I want a well-qualified surgeon. Right. So the question arises, how can merit and meritocracy, the idea of rewarding those who exercise their talents and succeed, how does that go wrong? I think it has gone wrong. In fact, I think meritocracy, as we've lived it out in recent decades, credentialism, the idea that those who land on top deserve their success. This is what has created, so I argue in the book, the polarization, the anger and resentment of a great many working people against well-credentialed elites. And here's how it arose. Even as globalization deepened inequalities, Josh, mm -hmm. its proponents said to working people, if you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to college. What you earn will depend on what you learn. You can make it if you try. Now, this seems inspiring, mm -hmm. but it's also it has a dark side. The dark side is that this kind of emphasis on dealing with inequality by offering upward mobility through higher education. There's, there's an insult implicit in this offer. And the insult is this. Remember, most Americans don't have a four-year college degree. Nearly two-thirds don't. Mm -hmm. So it's folly to create an economy that sets as a necessary condition of dignified work a college degree that most people don't have. More than this, it fuels hubris. This way of thinking, you can make it if you try. It fuels hubris among the successful mm -hmm. and humiliation among those left behind. Because what it says to the winners, you deserve it. Your success is your own doing. And what it says to those who struggle, who aren't flourishing, your failure must be your fault. This is the dark side of meritocracy that I think has fueled the populist backlash against elites that we saw beginning in 2016. And I think this, the continued polarization won't really be healed, Josh, mm -hmm. until we come to grips with this, with this dark side of meritocracy. It seems so fundamental. I mean, it's still it's still hard to grapple with that. When I hear Kamala Harris speak the other night, yeah, 
and she talks about you know quote dream with ambition and she's yeah. inspiring she's trying to inspire she is inspiring she's right she seems to be talking to the possibilities break down the barriers anything's right. possible and yeah right. you want to feel intuitively that there's something good about that rhetoric i'm sure so curious to right. how did you interpret her comments right dream with ambition that's an inspiring thing that's an admirable thing breaking down barriers it's a good thing it's a noble mission and we haven't carried that project far enough. The question is this, is suppose we were able to break down all barriers and have genuine equality of opportunity. That would take us further than we are today, but it by itself would not make for a just society or a good society because it would still be the case that those who managed to climb the ladder of success would owe a lot of their success, not only to their own doing, but also to the talents that they happen to have. Take, take an example from sports. LeBron James is a great basketball player, led the Lakers to the NBA championship. But is it his doing? Of course, he works hard to develop his talents. Is it his doing that he has the enormous gifts that he has, or is that his good luck? And more than this, is it his doing that he lives in a society that loves basketball? Or is that his good luck? If, if LeBron had lived back in the days of the Renaissance, they weren't wild about basketball. They cared more about fresco painters. So I think that, well, a big part of the message of, of the book is that we need to rethink our meritocratic hubris, those of us who have managed in one way or another to flourish in this economy. We need to remember what we easily forget, the luck and good fortune that helped us on our way. And this awareness, this, the humility that can come from it, can open us to a more generous stance toward those who struggle, uh, to those who've been left behind by the global economy that we've created that puts enormous weight on credentials and that generates a tendency of the successful to inhale a little bit too deeply of our success, to forget the luck and good fortune that helped us on our way. It, feel, it feels like there's just a friction there between the notion of humility and individualism. I mean, you know, that we celebrate individualism here. Now, that, that means, you know, be who you right. want to be. It, it, it right. means I'm not wearing a mask. Um, well. You know, and, and that's, you know, and, the, and issues like that. How much of this is, you know, related to that, though? Well, individual, there may be a tension. You're right, Josh. There may be a tension between an excess of individualism to which market societies like ours are prone, and the humility that comes from recognizing that however hard we may work to succeed, there's a whole lot of luck involved and a whole lot of indebtedness to family, to upbringing, to community, to country, to the times in which we live. And so I think that the, the, the sense of humility that I think is missing from the attitudes that shape success today is would require us to reconsider certain excesses 
of individualism, and you mentioned the example of, of mask wearing, this has become a flashpoint in the culture wars, not only because some cleave to an excessive and I think misplaced notion of individual liberty not to wear a mask during a pandemic, but also because goes back to the resentment of many working people who feel looked down upon by elites. Mm -hmm. And so now when we need, we need, as never before, trust in public health experts and medical experts to deal with the pandemic, expertise has been discredited because for decades, technocratic experts have, have said, we know how to handle the economy, trust us, we're going to deregulate finance, trust us, we're going to deal with the bailout. And a great many working people felt, and not only working people, that those experts didn't do such a great job with the economy, or for that matter, with governance in recent decades. And so now when we need trust in experts, that trust has been deeply eroded, and not for entirely irrational reasons. We're reaping the bitter fruit of that in the resistance to listening to public health experts. Right. It's public health experts. It has to do with the environment as well. I mean, so many people think of, as you call it, the technocracy or expert, this abiding belief in experts. Right. For many, um, we've seen in the elections past, this one as well, they equate that with they're going to regulate my business and, and actually curb my ability to succeed. And, it want, and especially when it comes to the environment. And that's why I, I sort of, I wonder if uh, liberals and conservatives can get together on an issue so critical like climate change, and, or if the Biden-Harris uh, administration is kind of destined to continue to fuel the division. Well, I think that's an open question, Josh, and a very important one. The climate change debate is a really interesting example of exactly this wariness of, of what experts say. And many people look at the climate change debate and say the real problem here is belief in science and in facts. And many people diagnose the polarization in our society as the unwillingness on the part of some people simply to accept science and basic facts. I think this is a misleading way of describing what's gone wrong, because it's not as if we could resolve the climate change uh, uh, clash simply by promoting greater scientific literacy. If that were the case, we would expect to find that the partisan divide on dealing with climate change is deeper among those with less education and that it narrows among those with more education. But in fact, it's just the opposite. The more education people have, the more scientific literacy they have, the greater the partisan divide on whether humans are responsible for climate change and if so, whether the government should do something about it. Mm -hmm. So what this suggests is that to heal the divides on issues like climate change, it's not enough simply to pound the table and insist on believing in science or on agreeing on the basic facts. In politics, political persuasion is about building trust. 
and bringing a shared sense of the common good. And then, in the light of people's opinions about politics, and in the light of the extent to which they trust one another, then one can work on trying to get some agreement about the facts. So it's not that we first must get agreement on the facts, and then we could agree on politics. I think we have to work on our political divisions and on the sources of the mistrust and on the polarization itself, and then the debate about the relevant facts to the climate change debate will become more tractable, not the other way around. You are watching HBR now, and we are with our guest, Michael Sandel, professor of political philosophy at Harvard University. And now I'm going to uh, bring back Octavia and Adi. Long time no see, guys. And Octavia, would you like to uh, uh, take the floor? Yes, so Michael, earlier this year, you led a university-wide discussion at Harvard on pandemic ethics. And according to a recent Gallup survey, more than a third of Americans, 35%, said that they would not get a free US government approved vaccine if it were ready today. Right. We're now inching closer to that point. So I'd love to know, do you think a vaccine should be mandatory? And what are the most salient arguments for and against? Well, thank you for that, Octavia. It is true that even once we have the vaccine, there will be the political and public health question. They're rolled into one. Will enough people take the vaccine in order to stop the spread of the virus? And this is a serious question. It's connected, I think, the problem is connected with this issue of trust that Josh and I have just been discussing. It's not, now some people will hesitate to the, uh, take the vaccine for fear that the process has been rushed or was rushed at least uh, during the Trump years for political purposes. So to some extent, that problem of trust will have to be overcome. But there's also the matter of trust in experts that, that we were discussing, which I think is a, a political question, not so much a scientific or a medical one. Uh, at the end of the day, I think it's important to recognize we do require vaccinations for certain diseases as a condition of sending kids to the public schools, for example. And uh, so I think that uh, mandates of this kind, of a similar kind, could be put in place and should be put in place for a COVID vaccine once it's clear and once it's established that it's uh, safe. So uh, whether you would require everyone in the, the country to take it, I'm not sure, but as a condition of enrolling children in school, for example, or in, for that matter, one could say, you know, entering certain public facilities, I think we may have to resort to that. Um, if I can jump in, I, you know, Michael, one of your most provocative observations is that credentialism, what you were talking about with Josh, right. what prep school or college you attended, is society's last acceptable prejudice. Right. Our sort of single-minded focus on, you know, and, and you talk about how that's eroded the social the social esteem of those who didn't go to college. So, you know, elite people, I guess, would say that we want well-educated people in government, say, because they will be the most capable of handling the complexity of change um, or, 
you know. So your argument is that what we really need, though, is leaders with sound judgment and a sympathetic understanding of others' lives. Right. So if we've defaulted in the past into thinking education might create that. If, if education isn't a proxy for that, where do we find people who have those abilities? That is a great question, Adi. I would start by saying that the ability to govern well, we have assumed, consists mainly in technocratic expertise. And this has tracked the growing influence of economists, professional economists in governance over the, over the last uh, several decades. And I think that we should begin it with higher education, can, having a broader kind of civic education for future leaders, focusing less on seemingly, allegedly value-neutral social science and economics, and focusing more on teaching potential future leaders history as a source of practical judgment uh, about how to make decisions, and also moral and civic education. Because in the end, leadership in a democracy is about identifying with people from all walks of life and acting in behalf of the common good. And this is a normative enterprise. It's not something that technocratic expertise by itself can provide. So I think higher education needs to shift to a greater emphasis on the, the liberal arts, humane forms of learning, including enabling uh, future leaders to be acquainted with reasoning about hard ethical questions. Beyond that, I don't think that we should look to our leaders, political leaders, only to selective colleges and universities. In fact, it's interesting to remember, Adi, that to, to notice that Joe Biden is the first Democratic nominee for president in 36 years without an Ivy League degree. Now, that doesn't mean he's less capable of identifying with the common good and with people from other walks of life. It may make him better at, at doing that. But in any case, I don't think we should assume that having a degree from a prestigious place and having command of technocratic expertise is the primary qualification for governing well. And what I think we need to do is to diffuse civic education of the kind I'm calling for beyond the citadel of higher education to community colleges, uh, state colleges, and also technical and vocational training sites. I would say also trade unions, community centers, rather than uh, then have the idea that, the, that civic skills, skills for civic leadership, belong only in higher education. Adi, if I could just add one example from the past. The Knights of Labor was the major labor union in the late 19th century, and one of their demands, beyond pay and working hours, was reading rooms in factories so that workers could have time and a place to read newspapers and journals and books to equip themselves to be effective citizens. I love that example because it's an example of the broad democratic diffusion of the civic learning, the civic education that I think democratic leadership requires. So if I could just ask a follow-up. So, and I'm being intentionally provocative here. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't seem to assign much agency to the relative have-nots. I mean, the argument seems to be telling the elite to stop being so condescending, 
stop having so much hubris. Um, you know, at a certain point, that seems paternalistic and elite. You know, that that the have-nots are absolved of responsibility for adapting to, you know, whatever the, the world throws in front of them. Right. Well, okay, that's a good provocation, Adi, and so so let me let me see if I can respond to that. Adapting to whatever the world throws in front of them. We sometimes portray globalization and technology just in that way as forces, external forces that the world throws in front of us and, and throws in front of those who struggle to adapt. But what this misses, Adi, and the point of, of my book, The Tyranny of Merit, is, is to make this point. A lot of what we consider as sometimes as external forces that just happen, like the weather, and people who struggle need to adapt by getting themselves a college degree, for example, misses the agency, the agency involved in, in the responsibility of governing, governing elites to have made certain choices about how to configure technology how to configure the global economy, choices that resulted in putting a greater premium on going to a highly selective university and getting an advanced degree. So I want to push the question back to those policies and have a broader public debate when we think about economics, about the dignity of work, what would it take to renew the dignity of work? What, 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 how could we reconfigure the economy? Take a small example, Adi. During this pandemic, those of us with the luxury of working from home can't help but notice how deeply we rely on workers we often overlook, not only those working in the hospitals to, to uh, treat COVID patients, but delivery workers warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, home health care providers, child care providers. These are not the best paid or most honored workers in our society. But now, what are we calling them? We're calling them essential workers. So I think this could be the beginning, an opening for a broader public debate about how to bring their pay and recognition into better alignment with the, the importance of the work they do. This is the kind of broader debate about how to affirm and renew the dignity of work that I think is the responsibility of all of us, not just a matter of saying, if you didn't manage to get a four-year college degree, then your failure is your fault. I think that's not only unfair, I think it's also a recipe for precisely the anger and resentment and polarization that has opened the way to a kind of authoritarian populist political appeal of the kind we saw in 2016, Adi. Um, thank you for that, Michael. And I just want to remind everyone watching, if you have a question, please do post it in the comments because we'll be going to your question shortly. But before we do that, Michael, I do want to talk a bit more about the moment we're in right now right. and about pay and the themes of recognition that you just discussed right. um, in your new book, and The Tyranny of Merit, the penultimate chapter talks about the recognition of work. And you reference how in this 
deeply polarizing time, large numbers of people are feeling ignored and unappreciated. Right now, working parents are at breaking point. There are widespread and well-founded fears that this pandemic will exacerbate gender inequalities and the gender pay gap. How do we tackle this? And where does the responsibility lie to ensure that women in particular do not continue to fall behind? Well, Octavia, that's such an important question uh, because I think that what the pandemic is showing, it's not itself creating these inequalities. It's highlighting, dramatizing inequalities that pre-existed the pandemic, including inequalities of pay, including gender inequalities. And so what I, I think we need to do, we need to step back and ask a fundamental question that underlies debates about pay and about taxation and about recognition. And that is, what really counts as a valuable contribution to the common good? We have a tendency to assume, now this may get me, get me into more trouble um, from maybe Adi, but we'll see. We tend to assume that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. But I think this is a mistake. We can think of lots of examples throughout our economy, and Octavia, you gave a, a very good example just now, of the, the work that disproportionately still is performed by women in raising children, even though there is some greater uh, attention to that inequality still. Much of the contributions made by those who care for children and raise families is either outside the labor market or not rewarded by the labor market in proportion to its true value. And the same can be said of many important roles within education. So I think we need to challenge the assumption that the money people make is the true measure of their contribution to the common good. Well, then what's the alternative? The alternative is to have a public debate about what, really, what we really consider to be the most valuable contributions to the common good. And then we need to discuss how to configure the economy to respond to those contributions in a way that the economy doesn't today. So for example, we could have a debate about wage subsidies as a way of increasing the pay and recognition of certain jobs, certain roles that we recognize are very important, but that the labor market left to its own devices doesn't properly reward. And so this, I think, here's another way of putting it, Octavia. I think that, in, especially in recent decades, we have outsourced our moral judgment about what's a valuable contribution to markets. And I think we should reclaim that judgment because the market verdict isn't always the right one about what really, what contribution really is worthy of, of pay and recognition. We need to reclaim that for democratic debate and then design our economy in a way that responds to it. Do you, do you think that, Octavia, is is that too provocative a proposal? I'd love that. 
<laughs> We're um, no, no beef for me either here. So don't come yeah. out of you for this too. Okay. So all let's right. let's go to uh, let's go to questions from. We have people okay. who are viewing from all over the world. So here's a question from Florian uh, in Hamburg. Who asks, uh, you know, one of the arguments often brought up is that the myth of meritocracy is sustained by the elite who may be more influential than the common citizen. So if there's no interest in changing it among those benefiting from it the most, right. how should, how can citizens mobilize to really try to change the system? Well, that's an important question. First, uh, I think we've got to bring everyone along. So uh, we need to mobilize everyone. And that be and the way to begin that, I think is to draw the connection for everyone between the deep polarization that we're facing, which everyone worries about, the polarization in our politics, in our society, in our culture, the evident anger and resentment and sense of grievance by a great many citizens that their voices aren't being heard, that their wages are stagnant, but more than that, that work in the traditional sense seems no longer recognized and honored the way it once was. These are things that I think everyone cares about. Those who've landed on top as well as those who struggle. So I think we need a, a new politics of the common good that could address, could show the connection between this way of thinking about success the credentialism, the tendency of elites to look down and assume that those who struggle must themselves be at fault for their plight. We need to reconsider this if we're to heal the deep divisions that the divide between winners and losers um, have created. So here, this might be the, the beginning of a kind of politics of the common good that would start from the idea of healing. Everyone wants healing. Everyone wants to ease the rancor and the resentment that animates much of the rancor. So that's where I would begin. So I'm going to combine a couple of questions. Uh, this is Jim from Indianapolis and Jane from Ireland. Um, you know, the, the questions are, are sort of how do we how do we define some of these these concepts? You know, so so who gets to write the definition of a, quote, just society? And then similarly, how does community build a shared concept of the common good? Right. You know, how do you do it? Or what are the steps to get there? Right. Well, who gets to write the definition of a just society? The answer is no one person in particular, though each of us uh, will have our views. This is the work of democracy, if it's properly functioning. A healthy democratic society consists in large part in an ongoing debate about ju what justice consists in, what it requires. And part of the problem in our public life in recent decades, I think, is that our, our public discourse has been hollow, empty of larger meaning and moral purpose. What passes for political discourse these days, sadly, consists mainly of, of shouting matches where politicians and people on talk radio and cable television shout past one another without really listening or attending to the, to the convictions, the moral convictions that lie behind positions with which we disagree. 
So this connects too with the second part of the question, Adi, about what a, what a politics of the common good would look like. It would begin with a morally more robust kind of public discourse than the kind to which we've become accustomed, where we debate openly competing notions of justice, of what we owe one another as citizens, of what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good. Um, our public discourse seems a long way from that today, but I think, I think the widespread desire to heal, to elevate the terms of public discourse, to aim for something better, has created a moment that at least is open to this more morally serious, engaged kind of civic conversation. All right, so I have, I have one more question, and this is from uh, Adi Ignatius in Boston. Um, <laughs> so when you talk about the negative effects of elite cond condescension, I really right. wonder, you know, what do you think about the, the generally left-leaning, you know, national political satire shows that reinforce this? The Daily Show, John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, Saturday Night Live. You know, the perspective, of course, is, you know, that we're smart and the other guys are idiots. Is that good, clean fun, or do you think that's damaging to American politics? Well, I like some of those shows, not all of them. The snarkiness of the humor, which may actually touch on the point that you're identifying, Adi. The snarkiness is, I, I've, I've never developed a taste for it, and I, I haven't reflected until now, Adi, that maybe the reason I'm not drawn to the snarky humor has a little bit to do with its being tinged with this hubris. Um, so it, it's an, an interesting suggestion. Um, but if we look across the media depiction of working people, especially working men, generally, it is striking how the public popular culture reflects this tendency of elites to look down. I mean, think of, think of Archie Bunker, think of Homer Simpson, that white working males depicted in popular culture on TV sitcoms tend not to be depicted very uh, honorably or, or with much dignity. And so I think that it's worth reflecting on the way attitudes toward success, attitudes toward winning and losing, including meritocratic hubris, find their way in seemingly benign ways into the popular culture and into the media. Um, I think it's worth considering, Adi. I think you've got a point. Thanks so much. Um, I, I have one last question for you, and then we're going to wrap this up. But I, I am curious, uh, the message of the talking about the dignity of work, I think, is, is crucially important and the humility that you talk about but there is also the disappearance of work, and it's not just globalization, it's technology and automation, and it seems to be irrevocable. And I'm just kind of wondering if we're led to a place of a universal income or a place where people are given what they need to kind of flourish in all different sorts of ways um, that maybe are, some are valued or different ways in society. Is that where we are, are heading with this, apart from the rhetoric of the dignity of, dignity of work right now? Well, it's a fascinating question. Some have proposed a universal basic income as a way of making the end of work for a great many people easier to bear. 
And if that's the main inspiration for a UBI, I'm a little bit wary about it for the following reason. I'm ambivalent about the universal basic income, Josh, and that's because as providing a basic income floor for everyone, I think that's a good thing, especially if the funds used to provide that floor don't depend on destroying other important aspects of the safety net, such as access to health care, for example, or to education, uh, or to food support for those who, uh, who need it. However, I don't think we can or should try to build a society or an economy without work for a large segment of the population. Uh, because I think it's important, I think people identify and aspire, not only as consumers able to buy stuff, having purchasing power, important though that is, but I think people aspire to be producers, to be contributors to the common good. I think the fundamental human need, and this is why work is so important, the fundamental human need is to be needed by one's fellow citizens and to be recognized and appreciated for answering some important human need. Because this is what, it's in our role as producers, as contributors, that we affirm our identity as members of a shared way of life, of community. Now, those contributions need not necessarily be commodified through the labor market. And in a way, this goes back to the discussion, the exchange with Octavia about unpaid labor and how it can be appreciated and affirmed. But I would hesitate uh, long and hard before embracing a kind of utopian or dystopian scenario that imagines that technology and robots and machines will replace work for a substantial portion of the population unless we can reimagine ways of contributing and winning esteem for our contributions outside the terms of the labor market. But that, that's how I would at least frame the question. And I think we need to, to put that question, the question of work and the dignity of work and the meaning of contribution and of the honor and esteem that goes with contribution right at the center of democratic public discourse, Josh. Uh, I think that's a great note to end on. I, I, I know I have a ton more questions, and I'm sure my co-hosts do as well. And I really hope people get the book and uh, and start discussing its ideas. There it is. Thank you, Adi. And uh, and have their own questions. It's, it's provocative. It's important. And I'm really glad, Michael, that you were able to join us today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Adi and Octavia. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. We look forward to seeing everyone next week. And uh, until then, have a great rest of your week. So long.
And we're back. We're back. Way to persevere, team. Wow. Our first technical <laughs> difficulty. That was great. We never actually had to use the sign. No. Thank you so much, Michael, for uh, hanging in there because that was that was a little rough start, but it was really great. Great conversation. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I, I want to know whether uh, whether you three were were being polite or whether you you find some of this persuasive. What do you make of it? Yeah, let's have Adam for real now. <laughs> <laughs> it was very persuasive. I thought it was fantastic. Thank you so much for the depth and thought behind the responses that you gave us. Really appreciate it. I learned a lot. Thank you. I found it, I mean, I, 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 I found it to be incredibly, it's hard because I feel as though a, a lot of us have grown up with this rhetoric for so long. Right. <laughs> and the connection back to Robert Kennedy and some of the things that I've read of his speeches around GDP and valuing different things, I thought there, like, where did the, dem, dem, where did the liberals kind of lose that thread Right. Was it just economic and they had to play to, you know, like it feels as though they were right there for a long time. But then for most of my life and certainly adult life, I've gotten the clear message of the meritocracy. Right, right. And Robert F. Kennedy is a great example, Josh, of the of a different way of discussing these things. Exactly. He was not saying the point of our mission is to help a few more people scramble up the ladder of success, even as the rungs right. of, on the ladder are growing further apart. He wasn't about that. Right. He was about, well, very much about the dignity of work. Mm -hmm. And he spoke, uh, he, he appealed to African-American voters and to white working class voters without a college education. He brought these two disempowered communities, in many ways disempowered communities, Mm -hmm. together because, I think, because he was speaking a different kind of language, including the language of dignity and including the language of belonging mm -hmm. and the sense of belonging that comes from contributing. So in many ways, he brought the best of a left progressive tradition together with a certain kind of conservative emphasis on, on values. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so I agree with you, uh, Josh, that the Democratic Party and I think liberal politics generally, when after after RFK, lost the ability to speak in that language. It was also a moral and spiritual language that he drew upon mm -hmm. and brought to bear. And, and we've we've forgotten that. And it was almost swept away by technocratic orientation of politics. Mm -hmm. No. Well, the the only place that I would kick back and Josh started to ask it is, um, no. you know, the whole question of the dignity of work. Um, you know, I like the argument that we made an unwelcome shift in our economic thinking from focusing on the primacy of production and focusing instead on the primacy of, of consumption of consumers. But right. you know, production production seems sort of like a 20th century thing. And, you know, as Josh said, new technologies are going to wipe out jobs, are going to wipe out industries. So how do you how do you sustain the dignity of a coal worker if the entire industry is on its way out? Well, we need to find other ways, significant ways that that coal miner can contribute without telling the coal miner become a coder. See, this is the key. I think we need to actually go into communities 
like coal mining communities. And instead of just pronouncing in the abstract, well, we're going to go for clean energy and that'll create a lot of jobs, that's hard to make that connection in a very direct way with what that coal mining community will become. So I think that uh, a politics that takes this seriously goes into coal mining communities with various scenarios, let's say, for clean energy jobs that could be performed with some retraining, but not without a massive radical change in that person's way of life and engage in discussion and dialogue with, say, the coal mining community about how the job possibilities of clean energy might actually become attractive alternative ways that people with similar skills, maybe with some retraining, could, could achieve. And, and so I, th I think that, that, that it has to be done on a granular grassroots basis like that, that actually includes people whose jobs will be displaced and whose ways of life are bound up with those jobs in thinking about and deliberating about how to make this transition, Adi. Does that make any sense? Yeah, but it, but it sounds to me like you're basically a techno-optimist that that, you know, yes, industries will get wiped out, but new technologies will create new jobs and that we don't need to think about universal basic income because something will come up to keep people productive. Or are you suggesting maybe technology should wipe out jobs, but let's not let it. Let's preserve jobs because dignity is more important than efficiency. Which well, is the only reason I have to say, I've never seen a company not automate Right. to save money and to eliminate jobs if it helped the bottom line. So it would be a, a right. very radical rethink of how people approach things. Well, I do think that dignity is more important than efficiency and the and that we should figure out a way to enable the economy and the development of technology to respond to that. How the companies respond, whether the companies will invariably go for efficiency over dignity, I think that partly depends on the broader economic structures and tax incentives that are in place. And so I and I also don't think we should take for granted. Well, if I could come back, Adi, to what you said, uh, production seems so 20th century. And. I, that, I think that's a telling observation, and it's a widespread view, but I, I would want to rethink that a little bit. Because if, if we really consign production to the dustbin of history, I think we're, we're throwing out a lot along the way. I'm not talking about particular technologies of production. Of course, those change and they change the configuration of winning and losing. But production understood as contribution, because that's really what production is about fundamentally in moral and political economy. It's about contribution of goods and services that some people, that, that people value, that society values. Production understood as contribution. I don't think we can jettison that, Adi, nor do I think we have to jettison it. Um, 
Unless we just take for granted that technology is a wholly external factor, like the weather, that comes upon us and we just adapt. I think that underestimates the extent to which the direction of technological innovation is the result of choices, choices that we make and economic incentives that we create. So that there will be new, new technology is clear, but the direction and the purpose with regard to work of te technological innovation, that's not fixed. Like it, it, That's not like the weather. That's the result of lots of choices, lots of policies that we make sometimes without fully debating them. Did you put a stamp over my Let's put a stamp over my screen that says schooled by professor. What do you think? Do you, do you think? No, no, I, let, me, let me yield the floor to. No, to no, I just like the, I like the term dignity over efficiency. I felt like that was, you have like entree to an HBR article there. Yep. <laughs> well, that's that I'm happy to talk about. <laughs> okay, exactly. All right, but Adi, just on this point about technology, the course of technology not being something like the weather that's wholly given outside us and we just adapt. Do you, do you do you think I'm wrong about that? No, I don't think you're wrong about that. I just um, it, it would. I mean, a lot of what you say, I I really, you know, like. It's just it 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 involves a pretty tectonic shift in how we do things, which is exactly why you should say them. Um, so I try to be pragmatic about how to get from A to B, and sometimes I'm not I'm not sure how to do it. But no, I I, I agree with you. I, I mean, I do think the view of technology and our ability to live with it is a matter of faith. You know, we will either you know adapt to it or not. And you know, you're right. Tax incentives can do a lot. Think of think of during COVID. You know, the tax incentive said you'll get money if you keep your you you don't lay off anybody. Right. And people say, yeah, okay, and they got their money. I mean, you know, there are we you know tax tax incentives can can work miracles if we if we figure out what we want to do. So. No, could I just put you one one other example, Adi, uh, about the direction of technology and how it's not just like the weather, just in a of a more concrete kind. Take pharmaceutical development. We we still don't have a a, a cure for malaria, but we do have one that's hugely successful for erectile dysfunction. Now you could say, well, technological innovation just brought us Viagra. And now it's just a question of whether, you know, people do or don't want to take it. And then there are ads encouraging us to take it. And technological innovation just happened not to bring us a cure for malaria. Mm -hmm. And if we had one, then of course, you know, we would distribute it and so on. But that, that um, poses the question at too late a stage. There are there are reasons why technology just technology just didn't happen to develop in the direction of a drug for for erectile dysfunction, but not for malaria. It happened because of the way the economy creates incentives for lifestyle drugs versus drugs for, you know, orphan drugs or drugs for tropical diseases and so on, where there isn't a lot of market. Power. So this is one small example of how the course that technology takes reflects not some some inter, some internal logic of technology, but the way we've designed the economy. I mean, that would be an example of what I have in mind. That's it. Yeah. Oh, really? It it 
It really is. Although you said it, I, we do take it as an article of faith that uh, that the mindset part is hard to it's hard to deal with that we put so much faith in technology as though it's like, you know, this, you know, the computer says so, so therefore it must be. And so, this is great. I appreciate it. And um, thank you again for, uh, for a really great episode. This was, this was, uh, this was actually a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out. Great. Thank My you. pleasure. Thank you all. All right. Take care.